0: Henry Murray began his humiliation experiments in the 60s. He was already a legend. He was in his 40s and calling the shots for Harvard's psychology branch when the Nazis rose to power. That's when Dr. Murray was called by his country to become intimately acquainted with the minds of killers. He and his team were tasked with building a psychological profile of Adolf Hitler. He was given the rank of lieutenant colonel and put in a division of the government that would later become the CIA. Murray was good at his job. He was so good, in fact, he and his team of profilers were the ones who predicted that Adolf Hitler would take his own life when the Nazis fell. Like we said, legend. Why is it so important to give you Henry Murray's resume? Because we need to understand that when Murray came back to Harvard after the war, he wasn't just a hero needing some experience to do. He was the authority on psychological profiling. He'd spent time with the CIA and could have been doing profiling work for them long after the war. And if your Harvard and Dr. Lieutenant Colonel leading profiler wants to run risky experiments about humiliation at your college, you give the hero a lab. Here's how the tests work. Murray paid students to sit in an interrogation room for two hours at a time. They were asked to write a list of their core values to defend their faith and their most intimately held beliefs but here's the twist when the students arrived for their interrogation a trained lawyer was waiting for them an adult career lawyer who was instructed to get rough with the students and had studied their core values and beliefs overnight his job was to destroy the students two hours in a cold room in front of a two-way mirror while a caffeinated lawyer murdered their personal values and decorated the room with their shredded faith. For several students, it was just too much. One of the test subjects said being in the chair was worse than electric shock. Even Dr. Murray himself said these attacks on the students were vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive, tailored to ruin their egos forever. To make matters worse, Murray would have students re-watch the videos of the sessions to study the effects it would have reliving the traumatic experience of having their core values shattered. If Murray had conducted the experience during the war overseas, it possibly would have remained a secret. Just another human experiment performed on POWs. Except, we've all heard of Murray's humiliation experiments whether we realize it or not because one of his broken subjects was a brilliant math student who cracked so hard he was in the national news for decades? That student who never recovered from having his faith and values humiliated was a young prodigy named Ted Kaczynski, AKA the Unabomber. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert.
1: And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no duh on the internet.
0: During the war, Dr. Murray developed a fascination with stress reactions. Specifically, he wanted to know how soldiers and spies could withstand physical pain and torture from the Nazis. Yet those same unbreakable men would utterly crumble when their personal values were attacked, a.k.a. psychological warfare. That would eventually become the focus of Murray's experiments in the 60s. How the specific emotion of humiliation can destroy a person forever. That will also be the focus of our two-part series about humiliation. On today's episode, Humiliation Part 1, we look at the humiliation of the individual. We want to know what's wrong with us, why would we come prepackaged with such a fault in our wiring? And is internet humiliation making us more violent, more depressed? Next week on Humiliation Part 2, we look at humiliation as a tool for society. Does humiliation have a productive purpose? Has humiliation been effective as a tool to stop addiction or to punish criminal corporations? We're going to get into the roots of humiliation, but first... I want to tell Joe about a man who was humiliated day after day for years and became stronger because of it.
1: Before we get into like um the our first subject of humiliation, I just want to ask you if we sat you down in a chair. By the way, this is on recording, so um this isn't like hypothetical. It is hypothetical, but it's not like cut out. Um Okay, so I've heard you talk about your faith on rare occasion, and I've told you about sort of my um, stoic dogma. If you had a trained lawyer sit you in a chair for two hours, and they like had overnight to prepare their case against you, and like this is their jam, like they were trained by a World War II like Nazi psychologist, yeah, do you think they could threaten your
0: faith or or your ideals? I'd like to say no. But I think, as a younger person, um, and I, I still have I still have some doubts about some of the things that I believe. And I'm to the age now where there's things I used to believe in that I don't believe in at all anymore. Yeah. So I think so. Yes, I think I would be a little bit shaken if someone was prepared. And uh, what about you? Do you feel like you're so grounded, or, or you have those railroad track values that whatever they said would just be kind of duck off the water's back
1: i think now see i I, again i I think age comes into it a lot like maturity not that i'm mature now i i still have um very immature moments almost purposefully but i mean like uh, this podcast and our experiences meeting so many people in the public calibrating my antenna based on how many people you meet having a career um just reading a lot of books, like reading about stoicism and, and reading, you know, grit and and reading about all these things that actually work for people. Like, like the science behind them is solid. And these are the things that make a solid mind. You go back to like 20, like college age, Joe, I am a mess. Like, like my ideals and philosophies are all over the place. And I mean, like I'm, I'm not going to blame my parents, but I do, do you feel like that comes into it a little bit that you, you, as a young man, you have a hodgepodge of like, here's what your parents gave you and here's what you're just figuring out outside of high school?
0: I think so, but I think you hit it on by saying you didn't hit it on. It's, it's not to blame it on parents, but the people that I know who... The people I know who have the most success in the young life and that continues on in their... I mean, the seeds you plant when you're young as far as education and and just your habits, really, they, they don't really show themselves the, the benefits or the the loss until you get older and everyone i've known who has had any kind of real success has had a real stable family and a real stable set of values you know they were the the good kids very right. rarely is a bad kid do anything great you know they, they romanticize that in the books in the movie right but in real life i don't think that's true right i think that the- that's like maturity bootstrapping Yeah, they always had some kind. They were really big into church, really big into their education. You know, their their parents already had some kind of success in something, and I guess success is not the right word, but um, you know what I'm trying to say. Right? Yeah, there's maturity itself is a is a type
1: of success. I I completely believe that. Um, so our hypothetical lawyer, I I think even now I could get shook on a couple of things. Not not my fundamental ideals. But, um, so we're gonna, we're gonna basically break down the science throughout this episode of why that is so dangerous for us as people. Well, and I think um, the
0: authority thing is a big one. <laughs> an older, um, more street smart lawyer who had time to prepare attacks you, and then c- that kind of goes into our own insecurities with authority figures or parent issues, you're gonna be a little bit vulnerable. And even especially if a, right. an Ivy League student who looks up to an older person, respectful, of an older educated person.
1: Right. I mean, like, if you want to talk about finding a lawyer that's really going to know your buttons, this is a lawyer at Harvard, and, like, this is a school for Harvard, and this is a Harvard student they're attacking. Ted, says, Ted Kaczynski was a genius math student. And he wasn't in the law program, but Harvard has a lot of really talented lawyers. So just imagine this hero legend, Dr. Murray, who predicted that, you know, uh, Hitler would kill himself, he comes up to you and l- asks, "Do you want to come back to Harvard, your alma mater, and destroy some students?" <laughs> he's not getting the worst lawyer; he's getting people that like would be able to do this. So yeah, this just, is this is interrogation. You know, this guy's stuff.
0: just a gun, right? <laughs> he's just a gun, right? Just, oh, comes in from his mansion in Cape Cod. You know, he just drives in. And <laughs> right. I hate kids anyway. I, I <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to do it. <laughs>
1: I'm going to name drop one of our friends. Uh, we we have a lawyer friend, Mitra. If she grilled me in a room for two hours, I would crack. So like, <laughs> I, I know what this feels like.
0: Five minutes in, she'd get the best of Joe. I've seen her do it. Just for sport. <laughs> just, just for fun. She wasn't even being trying to just be. Just for me. fun. <laughs> uh.
1: So we want to talk about um, when people break under humiliation and when they don't. Because that that's really like, we, we're dedicating an entire episode to... Uh, when does humiliation turn people into um, the Toronto uh, Chad and Stacy killer? When humiliation turns people into Ted, says, Ted Kaczynski? Like, why is humiliation so dangerous for some people? And yet, other people, you try to humiliate them, it, it's water off a duck's back, like Todd said, or it makes them better. It, it introduces humility. Like, it, it evolves into its final form of humility. So, we want to know... Where is that difference and how do we get to it? Like, how do we become the person who doesn't have their ideals absolutely crumble and flip up, you know, invert like an umbrella when people press on it? Um, Now, Todd, you uh, when we first started forming this episode, you had a note in our doc about Bob Dylan being booed (laughs) to sold out crowds. Edit, it's just, that's, that's all the note is, by the way. Like, like if anybody is listening and they're like, there's got to be more information here, I don't know. It just sounds so interesting. I wanted to ask.
0: Uh, there's, there's two of these. There's two of these, I guess you'd say, rock and roll examples of stories. So I'll share both with you. Well, Bob Dylan, when he, he changed his sound, he went from playing pretty much just kind of folk music and he went to more of, of a rock, a, a little bit hard. <clears throat> his fans were horrified. And we've all had that um, of going to a hear a musician that we love, and they play their new music, and we just, we just moan and roll our eyes. <laughs> but they were booing him right. off the stage. And this is a very peaceful, hippie <laughs> kind of folk singer. And people were pissed. They were so angry. And when I watched it and I didn't realize, you know, I mean, there's something to be said for 30,000 people saying they hate you. I would have changed my... I would have changed. <laughs> I would have come back to the folk music. What about you? I don't want to be booed out at the forum in L.A. when you're Bob Dylan. But he but he believed if, in what he was doing.
1: If if three people complain about something I've written, I stop writing it. Like, I am so much more sensitive than that about, like, uh, art. I, I don't imagine how... Bob Dylan endured that many people.
0: Well, you know, there's I,
1: in your personal taste. Do do you think his music was better when it got changed?
0: Um, I wasn't a huge fan of his either one of them. So I would be a bad, poor person to ask, but I would think there'd be a lot of pressure from his record execs, his managers, his family to say, "Hey, what are you doing?" And his band. I, I I just think you have to really be a you know an eagle and and another one too. Joe was um, Prince. Prince, when he was coming up, and he wasn't f- real famous yet, but he was—he, you know, he'd sold some records, and he was on tour. He was on tour where I thought this was interesting matchup with the Steve Miller band, which is a, a different kind of music. So he's open. Yeah, that does, that's not a Prince sound. <laughs> no, no. It's less pop, and it's just very different. And so he was open for Steve Miller. Well, the the fans did not. The Steve Miller fans, which is the majority of the fans were, because Prince was not established yet, hated him. They were booing him. They were trying to boo him off stage very similar to bob dylan and it bothered everybody it bothered all of prince's uh, team all of his record executives all his manager the steve miller was furious about it and and then they, they wanted him fired the only person that didn't bother joe was prince he didn't give a shit what everyone else thought <laughs> 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 he's gonna sing and dance and play the way he is He doesn't care anymore, and I can see that, right? You can see him with his legs crossed, smoking a cigarette, right? (laughs) Yeah, you.
1: (laughs) Prince's natural face is not giving a fuck, so like that—that makes sense. To briefly, briefly get into like the evolution of humiliation, we have had episodes about like how not all gossip is bad, how social grooming is generally good for humans. You know, what is what is the role of humiliation in evolution? seems to me to fall under that sort of same category of social calibration that um, the, the best way, I mean, like we had an episode where we talked about shame and we found out that, you know, shame is actually kind of a good thing in small doses. It teaches you what is not acceptable to your tribe. And if we're talking early humans um, that's important knowing that, you know, uh, uh, doing something frightening or gross or annoying you should be shamed out of that in small doses. But humiliation is a bit different. To define it, shame is something you do that you don't feel good about. Humiliation is something where um, it's basically done to you. Like, somebody humiliates you, it's them challenging your beliefs about yourself in a way where you're not necessarily at fault. Does that does that kind of ring true for you?
0: It does. And to me, humiliation, um, you know, we all go through things in life, and we we, we do silly things, and to me, humiliation is kind of like a car accident that they put your car back together, but you're never quite the same from it. You know, like if you do something... Yeah. You know, I remember as, as a kid doing things that I embarrassed myself in front of the school or front of my friend group. It, I could still... If I start talking about them, I can get in that state <laughs> 30, yeah. 30 years later of, of shame and, you know, what good came... And, and you're right. A lot of our shows are talking about you know how got there gossiping that has its place in our life. Depression even has a big place and and we need it. So I'm interested to see how we're going to if you if a little bit of humiliation is a good. I feel like I need to be shamed or if I'm left to my <laughs> <I'd> be <ashamed laughs> a little, I think a little bit of shame for people like me is good. But but do you understand what uh. I mean? <laughs> Have you had that thing happen? I, Does anything jump out to you being so humiliated that you just thought, I'll never get over this. And you never really do.
1: <laughs> I I know that you're caffeinated because that was a perfect metaphor. The car has been totaled, but you just rebuild the outside anyway. Like like once you twist a chassis even a little bit, the car is never going to drive exactly straight again. That's what being adult is. It, it, being an adult is you've taken so many dings and you've gotten hit so many times that your chassis is completely s- screwed but you have just replaced the outside panels over and over again. So you look nice and new and put together, but really on the inside you're just like a, a ball of yeah.
0: nerves. You're an omelet. You're a scrambled omelet inside, yeah.
1: Right. You're just trucking down the road um, because you've, you've managed to put on a good facade. Um, we're, we're obviously being facetious, but there's there's a lot of truth to that, that that, that social calibration comes at a cost. It, it really does it, – it, it has to be memorable, if you could brush off humiliation or shame, it wouldn't serve its purpose in the sense of evolution and tribe. If you could just say, oh, you know, um, what they said doesn't matter, and I'll just push forward, that's what a sociopath is. So shame and humiliation do have its place, uh, but you don't recover from it. I remember um, one of Louis C.K. jokes is, is about dating and how hard it is, and he talks about women get broken up with and it's difficult, but... Women will sometimes shame or humiliate a guy on their way out the door, and it changes you as a person. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know if that is the same for both genders, but I do know that I've had that experience. I've had that experience in high school and college when I am debating and like somebody proves me egregiously wrong and like points out my personal flaws and in my beliefs. So I, I know it's happened, and it it does stick with you like it, it becomes that twisted chassis um do you want to get to an example of somebody who seems to be completely impervious to humiliation
0: yeah this is an interesting story <clears throat> i shared the story with a friend of mine who does who gives us some show ideas and does some research for us chris wilkes an ex-navy guy and he's a an ex-veteran and I told him, for some reason, all the best stories come from the Navy, of all the armed forces. I, I think the <laughs> Navy, I don't know why. It's not, with you know, there's a lot of heroes in the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, and everything, but some of them are. Well, this guy's. this was from the Vietnam era, and there was a man who enlisted in the Navy because he was a patriot. His name was Dead Doug Headdog. And this is a very interesting story. And The story is about him just being an idiot. Okay, he's known as the idiot, right? Okay. So, so he 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 there was a draft in the, in Vietnam, but he he actually enlisted, and he was working. He was on a battleship in North uh, North Vietnam, and he he wasn't supposed to be on the deck when the big guns fire because they they'll blow your eardrums off. Well, he was. He didn't listen. He went out on the deck, and the guns Joe blew him overboard. So he was stranded <laughs> at sea with no life jacket, no anything. He was just out there like enjoying the view and got blown overboard. Sounds like a sounds like a Mr. Magoo, doesn't it? Kind of a dummy thing. So like it, it must
1: it was like the backlash or the the blowback from the guns did it. <laughs> exactly.
0: it sounds horrible. Does doesn't that sound concussion and blow your arm off? So-
1: <laughs> right. A cartoonish puff of air next to the gun and then he's overboard.
0: I can't even imagine that kind of force. So this guy's dumb luck. This guy's a big dummy, by the way. So he, he's in the north. He gets picked up. He gets saved by some North Vietnamese fishermen, which is great luck, right? But they quick right. they quickly turned him over to the <laughs> to America's enemy, the North Vietnamese, and he was taken to um, Hanoi Hotel.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: oh, the uh,
1: uh, the Hanoi Hilton. Ha-
0: Hanoi Hilton. I'm saying that wrong. I'm sorry. And this was. This was a a prisoner of war camp that was just known for torture. Um, Now, Doug was an intelligent man. He was a smart man, but he decided to play dumb. So they started torturing him over and over like they did everybody, tying him up, beating him. And he pretended he couldn't read. He pretended he couldn't write. He told his story. He spun his narrative that he was a poor farmer from America. And that he was so poor, Joe, that he didn't even have a water buffalo. And to the <laughs> so to the North Vietnamese, they're thinking, you're not a farmer. You're just pathetic. What kind of farmer doesn't have a water buffalo? <laughs> right. Of course, they're not in our country. but So he was a few moves ahead. They tortured him like they did everyone else. But finally, because he couldn't read or write, Joe, they just kind of gave up. It's this big dummy. They knew he wasn't a pilot. So they were real suspicious of him when he first came in. This is an important point. Because he was too big. He was too tall. He's a big guy. So they figured if he's not a pilot, he must be a spy. So they really put the clamps to him. So eventually, they realized that he was no danger. He was a poor farmer. Couldn't read or write. He was illiterate. They started to give him a little bit of free reign. He could move around. He could talk to everybody. But what they didn't realize was he was actually a genius. So what he started doing was he, oh. he started memorizing the landscape, he started checking out. So he was still still a soldier and still wanted to escape. So he kept an eye on everyone and he got to memorize, and this is a very, very important fact, is that he got to memorize everybody's name because the US doesn't know who's captured and who's killed. And who's captured can leak out a lot of you know useful information that could cost a lot of people their lives. And, and lose the battle or lose a war. So finally, okay. playing dumb, the 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 North Vietnamese wanted to get rid of him because they wanted to uh, good faith it is to let some hostages go from time to time, right? So they're thinking, let's let this incredibly stupid one go because he's no he's no threat to us. So he gets out. He'd memorized over two hundred and fifty names. And he was said to have saved a lot of POWs' lives.
1: That is so great that like he's going around sweeping, being called the incredibly stupid one every day, and he's just memorizing names, like just.
0: In <laughs> a trick to do it, I mean, they, they were shocked when they finally when he, when he got with the U.S. Um, back with the U.S. military, they couldn't believe how many names he could memorize, and and he also knew the landscape, so that so they could attack that area without killing anybody. But he he learned it Joe in an interesting way. He he learned it in a song. Um, Old, Old MacDonald had a farm. That's how he learned it <laughs> to over two hundred people's names <laughs> to memorize it. Yeah.
1: I wonder if their names had to rhyme like like two hundred fifty people. I wonder if he was picking out like put them in a succession where they had rhyme to Old MacDonald, or is it just him repeating the names to the tune? That's probably not an important question, but it is for me. I think so. When I started reading about this, it became evident pretty quickly that um, when people know their own worth and know their number, like like when you go dating, you you assign people a number, you say, oh, she was a perfect 10 or like, oh, that guy, he's like a five on his best day. People have a number internally too. Like they, they have a, a number for their own morals and values and things like that. And so if, if people know they have a high number internally on the inside, like, like Hegdal here, uh, Doug Hegdal got blown off a ship, pretended to be incredibly stupid, got named incredibly stupid. But on the inside, he knew he was a high number. Like he he walked around knowing he was a 10 in his own mind and that saved him. And it saved, you know, a lot of people. But, you know, we, we talk about um, the guy that uh, went... In Toronto uh, went around killing people and part of it is because he was a narcissist who got humiliated like he a narcissist cannot know their own number like they they don't know their own value or worth and they are easy to sort of get under their skin so I'm not saying everybody who gets humiliated is a narcissist it's more like that's the most dangerous person to humiliate is a narcissist because they will react violently so the the thing I'm sort of uh, uh, edging toward is i think self-awareness is yet again our answer we're gonna get obviously way more deep and detailed into why and how um but i do you ever feel better if you humiliate somebody like have you ever like gone out of your way to humiliate somebody for a purpose where like you thought it was correcting their behavior
0: i did and then it's kind of that you, you beat them you you show them up put them in their place and you, you, you get to be right <laughs> so rarely, but yeah, I I'm not proud of it, but yeah, I have done that.
1: Okay. I, I've done it before thinking I was instructing somebody, and I've also humiliated people by accident, just by saying things that like were observations and, and corrections. I didn't realize until we started this episode that humiliation is kind of a rainbow of purpose. I always just thought it was, like, there's two versions of humiliation. One is negative, where you're trying to destroy somebody. And then one of them is sort of semi-positive, like uh, frat boys who haze each other when they're trying to, like, induct each other into their fraternity. Like, that um, part of our the origin of this episode is you had a question about that. Like, why would anyone do that? Like, if, if humiliation is such a weakness in the human psyche... Why would people in a fraternity? Why would why would kids? Why would anybody humiliate each other for fun? Because that really seems to be why we're doing it.
0: Well, don't you think too? Like when you go, you hit a nerve with me on the the college hazing thing. Not being an academic, not going to college. It's hard for me to understand that I would let any kid do that to me. It just seems so. First of all, it seems like you would you'd be you'd they'd never respect you the same. <laughs> and I guess it's exact opposite, right? You're in the club, and you're one of the boys or one right. of the girls of the sorority. Right. And it's it's worth it. And everyone's glad they did it. But I just think there's no way I would let some kid do that to me.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's it. It feels to me like if you're being humiliated by somebody else because it is such a fundamental thing in, in your like they're challenging you as a person like like if you go up to somebody and you humiliate somebody for the way they dress or the way they look that is embarrassing. But if they go after values or ideals or something like that, then they're challenging you as a person and it's it's war. Then then you have, it, it seems like much bigger threat to me. Isn't this parenting um,
0: 101, Joe? I mean, I, I just can't, I keep running this movie through my head of, of the parent who is a just crazy mom, psycho dad, screaming at their kid about, you know, what, that they're ruining their life, that they're ruining, you know, their reputation and, you know, just overdoing it to people who are, who are very human themselves, these parents, you know? <laughs> right. My, uh, my mom, who's one of the wisest uh, people I know, she tells this story. I, I said this story. I said, Do you ever notice how, how a young mom is kind of has an arrogant way about them? They have their baby and they just, it's kind of where they move. And she said, Yep. Yeah. She says, Absolutely. She says, You know, having a baby is very exciting and your kids haven't humiliated you yet. <laughs> and I share that with every parent, and by the time I get to the end of it, they're shaking their head, "Is absolutely
1: <laughs> okay." So, so let's get to the reactions of humiliation. If we're going to understand it, we need to first first pin down that not everyone reacts violently. Um, there is the new mother <laughs> who gets humiliated by their kids and they adjust like they they learn a different way to operate and to hopefully like it it makes them better as a parent like they how do how do you think your mom changed her behavior once she got humiliated by her kids
0: she ruled with iron fist right discipline
1: <laughs> she got harder <laughs> yeah so we've we've got the inc- uh the incel killer was his name or, or what they refer to him in Toronto we've got the Somebody who gets humiliated, they experience self-disgust because they actually don't feel good about their values. They actually feel like their internal number is low, so they become violent. There are people like um, a a new mother or uh, family members who get humiliated, and it's a light humiliation. It's done with the right kind of... um, It's it's done not in a... I I was going to say loving way, but in a corrective way, where it is by accident like no one no one should be humiliating each other on purpose but by accident or by evolution they're humiliated in a way where it actually corrects their behavior and that's kind of you know the the shame of it is what is supposed to be in our our evolution to help us that is the tune your antenna kind of humiliation then there's something called um, masochism where people are aroused by humiliation or there are people who get humiliated and it makes them stronger like like doug Hegdal. so like we have these this rainbow of reactions to humiliation none of it is um productive in in my opinion except for tuning your social antenna the only one that seems to me to be productive is you turn humiliation into humility and you move on from it so i, I
0: hum- humiliation to humility i don't like that that's got, that's got a, that's got a ring of speech to it joe
1: Right. There's, um, they say something in psychology today, which really helped me kind of like wrap my head around this. Um, They said, quote, if we have committed what could be considered a faux pas, we show embarrassment. And then we're less likely to be attacked by members of the tribe. Uh, This is why we blush when we get employee of the month. And, you know, when we're singled out for something good, Uh, we're saying, you know, that we're embarrassed. And basically we're saying, please don't attack me. And shame does the same thing. But if you're humiliated and it's not justified, like like if you've done nothing or, you know, people are singling you out because they want to appear strong to the social group. Like, literally, this is what bullying is. A bully picks on you because they want to try to adjust your social antenna, but in a negative way. They, they want you to remember that you're lower than them in the pecking order. They place. will humiliate you. Yeah, they, they will humiliate you to falsely adjust your number downward. And, you you know, if we don't feel good about ourselves, if we don't have solid moral values, uh, you know, we have an idea of what we are and what we're like. And when this is challenged, we can experience a feeling of being obliterated. It's it's crazy.
0: What about early in your creative career, Joe? Um, And me with this show and and the speeches I've done have felt this where um, where you get criticized and it is humiliating. And you know there's truth to it, but you just still believe in what you're doing. You don't believe you're as bad as they're making you out to be. Did you know that humiliation, that early artist humiliation?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, I think that is one of the most productive humiliations. I remember um, original, like early speeches I gave where I um, absolutely, you know, I thought I was doing great because I was delivering good information But I was actually really bombing because I wasn't reading the room and everybody was bored and I was getting very deep and very dense very quickly. But when I got the feedback for that, I still thought I was doing great. I felt humiliated because uh, people were telling me, we didn't understand you. And I I was reacting with, well, that's your problem. We didn't understand Um,
0: that. We didn't understand that feedback. Yeah, we weren't ready for that. Yeah, it's weird though. Right. Because you know that... It's upsetting because you know there's truth to it, but you just can't digest it. You can't accept it.
1: <laughs> I've I've seen you go through that same process in writing and delivering speeches. I I, ha- I have seen you come back from speeches where people have given you critiques that are not very helpful. Like they may touch on some truth, but they're not delivered in a way where you can immediately use it. And I've seen you come back uh, frustrated with that. <laughs>
0: It is. It is frustrating. You know, you consider the source on these things, but I think I'm an over-emotional person. And I see it as a, a personal assault. Or like what you said, I, that's that's probably one of the toughest ones. Is what you said just kind of made me cringe. Because if some you write something that's really good, let's just say it's a 10-minute speech or presentation, and, and they, they single out 30 seconds. Well, for me, I'm, I say, well, you're being a jerk. <laughs> you're nitpicking me <laughs> when really they're just fine-tuning you know right <laughs> and I've gotten a lot better at, at uh, Joe taught me this and and it's, it, this will always, no matter how poorly something is delivered advice or, or feedback there is some truth in, into it so it's our it's our idea if we want to grow and get better this, this is Joe Anthony here we need to we need to listen well, you know, with a humble open heart
1: right listen, be ready to uh, discard the parts you can't use or don't understand but whatever feedback somebody's giving you there is a little bit of truth to it
0: no matter how badly it's delivered I think is the important part of this
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> the, the most truthful feedback somebody can ever give you and, and sometimes it's the only thing you can take away from somebody's critique of anything is they either want more or less of what you're doing whether that's writing, whether that's acting, whether that's art, whether it's it's conversation, it can just be you at work. The most, you know, if you boil someone's critique or shaming of you down or or if you if you feel humiliated, you can boil it down to, did somebody want more of this or less of this uh, of whatever you're doing? And that might be a healthy way to sort of like get past the humiliation of what happened and, and get to, Something usable and and growth worthy.
0: Just be careful, careful in these toxic relationships, Joe. I, I think a lot of people will, you know, the overcritical people will use that. They, they'll push that line to not humiliate you, but kind of keep you in your place by nitpicking you. Right? You know, they they learn that to plot of the, those those really good manipulators that all of us have in our lives. Some at home, some at work. <laughs>
1: They'll try to make it seem like it's for your benefit and your growth, but really they are just doing it because they want to feel you know stronger. They they want to lower your internal number because they don't feel like theirs is high enough. That's that's okay. So um, getting back to uh, the incel killer, when he was humiliated, it was mostly online and by his peers, and he knew like if you um, he put out a manifesto. And he was sort of like a semi-attractive guy. Like, like if you look up pictures of him, he's not ugly, and he's not, um, you know, he's he's got his, his family's got some money. Like he comes from the middle class, so there's nothing outwardly really wrong with him. It's just that he's so ugly on the inside, and people pick up on it very quickly. He was very self-aware. His manifesto talked about being, you know, gross and dangerous, and like how people didn't like him. It and. That might have been the more dangerous component to his humiliation is when people would humiliate him, he knew his internal number was low. Mm -hmm. And he felt that like it, it was a it was a destruction of his personality, because when people would point that out, like the lawyer did with Kaczynski, the Unabomber, like when he when the Unabomber was being questioned, the lawyer was probably just looking at his internal number and being like, hey, yours is actually lower than you think it is. Your values aren't that strong you know, the things that you believe as a young man aren't that solid. You don't have your moral set up yet. You're not matured yet. Your number is this. And when somebody can call your number accurately, it's the worst kind of humiliation. It destroys you as a person. Um, uh, the incel killer obviously went out and murdered people about it.
0: We might be giving too much credit to this uh, Harvard attorney hotshot. I, I think all of us could sit down with, <laughs> with, with a 20-year-old and listen to their their situation, what they believe, and pick it apart pretty fast with a few questions. Because when you get older, it isn't that you're wiser, it's just that you've read this book 10 times, you've seen this movie 10 times, so you know how it ends. So <laughs> it's not, right. it's really not, I don't care how how, how high a grade point average they have, a 20 year old is still a 20 year old.
1: Uh, yeah, a 20-year-old man is an absolute mess
0: of, you know, a hodgepodge. <laughs> Testosterone, and it's like a puppy, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Women are a lot smarter. Young women are way smarter. But <laughs> young men, we can speak out.
1: Douglas Hegdahl, the guy that we're kind of using as our example of somebody who took humiliation in the best way, he being called the incredibly stupid one, it wasn't a challenge to his sense of self. Like, it, it didn't lower his internal number. He knew where he stood, it became his strength. Like, he played into it. He, pre- he pretended to be incredibly stupid. So, being humiliated, but knowing your internal number, knowing your values come from something internal, like a foundation of good morals, it becomes an armor. Like, it, it really lets you sort of manipulate a situation in ways that you never could if people really knew what your number was. Um, So, that kind of leads back to me wanting to know more about the Unabomber, because this is a guy who obviously didn't have his... Like, like, imagine being so absolutely ruined by somebody calling out your internal number that you go on a decades-worthy, you know, murder spree with bombs or attempted murder spree at least.
0: Yeah, Ted Kaczynski. I didn't realize this went on for so long. This he started in 1978, so his humiliation started in college. It didn't start to really show um, until 1978. So that was years later. Um. But then it, it, his terror reign went from 1978 all the way to 1996, Joe. And the, the one that's upsetting. That the, is,
1: how did I not know it was that long? Like, Yeah, it's before our time a
0: little at, bit, right? But it just seems like, and it was spread out, but then it got a little bit more frequent. And and all it's told, he, he, this serial killer killed three people, but he injured over 24. And a lot of these were serious injuries here. Um, you know, vision loss, here eye loss, loss of a hand. and as I read through each one of them it just it just got more disgusting and more disgusting uh, you usually get, you usually get more des- desensitized after one or two, but for me this was kind of tough. For some reason, the mainings were worse to me than the and they were just so random picking on professors and, and people it just it just seems so weird to, to be this obsessed for this long.
1: I don't know why it was worse to I mean like there's no good place to enact a reign of terror, but it was all like academics and like professors
0: and stuff. Well, he was he was described as a radical environmentalist. (laughs) I mean, that's yeah, that's a big yeah, radical in capital letters, right?
1: Is that why the Unabomber was doing it? Like he was an
0: environmentalist? He was an environmentalist. This is what he thought. You know, he went, he became, he got out of Harvard. He was a math just whiz. He's an absolute genius. And he was a professor at University of Cal. And he had a lot of problems. He had a lot of, a lot of the kids didn't like him and a lot of his students didn't like him. The other teachers thought he was very weird, very aloof. And he just had some really, really poor social skills to the point where he kind of had to run away from reality so he left his job as a professor he lived off of his parents so his parents his family supported a lot of this and i I think that's something that kind of gets swept under the rug so he was able to go live out in the wild kind of he first started he got a hut in montana and then he lived tents pretty much for by by portland's standards he was a homeless person Um, he'd ride his bicycle to the library and that's where this festering thing about—he felt like he had a real connection with nature, and that his happiness was based on the woods and um, living like uh, um, a survivalist. But then he realized that commercial economics is—what um, de- do you call it? Defore- Deforesting. Being being an environmentalist, he felt like industry was going to destroy um, the. To destroy the environment and destroy his home. And he felt personally threatened by this Joe. So he felt like he had to get the world to wake up and pay attention to him. And this was the best way to do it.
1: I was going to say, that even sounds more selfish than I was imagining. Like, when you first said environmentalism, I was like, well, at least he, he stood for something. But because he is doing it, because he his little shack in the woods is being threatened, that even makes it selfish. Like, like taking a... a a cause I could almost get behind, and then making it about him again.
0: What's really funny is beginning when the crimes first started. You know, because they have the FBI involved in, in this. Um, he was sending bombs to, sc- to schools, going after academic professors who, who, and what he was trying to do was gain attention for his cause. But the police thought thought that he was a blue collar guy, and the reason they thought that was because of all of the things his bombs were made with were very, very basic things. There were things you could just buy in any kind of store um he'd get batteries wood string he never left any trace of dna which should have been a a red flag to them that this we're dealing with someone who's really smart he even made the glue that he used for his explosions himself
1: that's like some stuff i've seen on like dexter like that's crazy
0: (laughs) yeah you could just see him sweating in his little hut right with all this stuff kind of all scattered around and finally towards the end of his reign They put 125 agents to his case, full-time. Holy shit. (laughs) And a $1 million reward. Think about that, Joe. 125 people against this one guy? That should show you how smart he is.
1: It is... I remember watching old news clips of him, and he was big news for so long, I'm shocked nobody got bored of it. Like, Like, there's... I mean like COVID I'm already tired and bored of and like you know uh, wars in the Middle East people have tuned out but they, this guy he must have been effective because like to do it for 20 years and keep that kind of manpower news on him
0: yeah I just can't think of why it just seems like such a cowardly act to me When you read after one after another, you know if you want to go and and lay in front of a bulldozer or something, you know. (laughs) But chain yourself to a tree. Yeah, yeah, but to, to 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 do that to people who are unexpected and and I guess he just he demonized these people as in that they're they're doing something personally to him. I mean, how can you hate someone you don't even know?
1: Right. So. We'll never know this because they didn't record it or at least it didn't get released to the public. So something, I mean, like, he was obviously a sociopath before he went into, you know, the humiliation room. But something happened with his personal values where, like, he rebuilt them. Like, you said, like, you, you damage the car, the chassis gets bent, you know, you, you put the panels back on. Like, like you you can rebuild it, but it's never the same. He was never so the same to the point where he rebuilt his entire moral and ideal structure around hyper-environmentalism at the cost of sending bombs to people and, like, wearing, you know, homemade pants and making his own glue and weird shit like that. So, like, (laughs) that is a level of not coming back from humiliation where you're not driving a car anymore once it gets wrecked. You're just driving a twisted piece of metal that still has an engine that moves somehow. So do you want to... Do you want to talk a bit about how to how to come back from humiliation? Like what it takes to learn from it?
0: Yes, and not never do it again because I, I don't I don't think I can handle another one, another round.
1: Okay. Well, first off, we've kind of talked about creatively how we come back from humiliation. How you and I have like basically coached ourselves and coached each other. How is what is your go-to for like when somebody tries to humiliate you? What is the way you kind of like come back from it or shake it off?
0: The only thing I find that works is time <laughs> being ultra sensitive okay. to what people think about me um wanting every- wanting to wanting everyone to like me <laughs> uh it's it's tough. What about you
1: i didn't yeah, I didn't think about that, but um people who are ultra sensitive to you know opinions of others, I'm a writer, so obviously I count and you just like people so both of us are are very sensitive to others' opinions. If you get humiliated, I, if I get humiliated, it is tough. Like, I, it takes me a while. It takes time. I have to tell myself why they were wrong. Like, uh, <laughs> even if they were right, I still tell myself initially that like that person's full of it. They don't understand what I'm trying to do. They don't understand me. And then I, I eventually stop whining. And it was easier you know, go correct what I need to correct.
0: It was easier when I was younger. I could just have a good cry. And not that I've outgrown yeah. crying, but it's just harder to get to that point, you know? A nice, heaving, dry cry, you know? <laughs> they don't <Right>. know me. <laughs> That's not <Yeah>. true. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what, yeah, what have they ever done? I'm going to be so much better than them eventually, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I found um, a fun Forbes article that talks about this, and we're going we're gonna to leave links to it. Um, they did an interview with uh, Bill Treasurer, and if you've never heard of him, um, he he basically goes around, like he he espouses humiliation. He thinks humiliation is a good idea, and he's worked with NASA and Sachs Fifth Avenue and UBS Bank and Spanx, and it's just like the list of of people and places he's worked with is insane. And he he basically is like a leadership expert. Like that is his jam. And what he says is, you know, we we want leaders to be confident. But we don't want them to not be able to learn like like that is, um, you know, if we if we look at like uh, some of our favorite presidents that we've talked about on our episodes, you know, Lincoln and FDR and stuff, they would get humiliated and they'd learn from it. That is that that is exactly what you want in a good leader. You want them to be able to take humiliation and turn it into being humble. Uh, He says, uh, quote, if you claim to be humble, you probably aren't. Most often you get humble only after you've been humbled. Humility is the positive outcome of humiliation, and sometimes the best thing that can happen to a leader, specifically a leader with an oversized ego.
0: Anyone who's been fired from a great job, and, and most of us have, that's humbling. It floors you. You for, you think, yeah. you really believe that they, this company won't go on without you, and, and it's just, you go through all the stages of grief and everything. And the same thing with a divorce. I, it takes you to a to a basement it takes you to a bankruptcy below that that can only be humbling you really can't just power your way through it you really got to sit back and say wow I lost half of my stuff I've got a broken heart <laughs> sometimes <Yeah>. you're homeless <laughs> it's tough you know but those are the two i think when you lose a really good job or you have a really bad breakup it's that humility serves you well later in life you know that that humiliation of a failed relationship you you hold that to you and you fight more moving forward in your next relationship or your next job your next yeah. position, your next good job not maybe not as good as that one but the next good job you have you say wow this could end i better i better enjoy this
1: i didn't think about it but but a positive humiliation, those are both really good examples. Like, I I, I kind of struggle to find good examples myself, but with both of those, when you walk away from either a, uh, a relationship where you were, you know, humbled or humiliated, or a job where you thought you had it cinched, and and then you get let go, it it teaches you to not be complacent. Like, that's something that never came up in these articles about humiliation is complacency, but... If you stop taking out the trash in your relationship or you stop trying too hard or at work if you if you start coasting, a lot of people who are coasting don't expect to be humiliated and they don't expect to be called out on anything. They, they think they have it all in the bag. Now, you mentioned family humiliating you a bit. Speaking of family being a, an initial source of humiliation... Who eventually turned in the bomber? Like this is almost like trivia night, where I ask this, and like half the people listening will probably be like, "I know this."
0: <laughs> well, they put in, a, you know, they put a million dollars. So the, uh, over a hundred FBI agents, right? I mean, it's, that's that's that means it's your enemy number one. But a million dollars reward, which is nineteen ninety six, is a lot more money than it is now. But it's a lot of money. So they had thousands and thousands of leads. But the the actual. The person that actually turned him in was his own brother, David. Now, David did not know for sure; he wasn't certain. But David was a uh, very different kind of person than his brother. Very intelligent, you know, smarts running in the family, good genetics, right? Um, he was running a homeless shelter for youth. So, you know, which is a very admirable thing, right? And how he figured okay. out who his brother was—this is right up your alley. Was he read some of the papers that were written, and then he went through his old stuff he had from his brother, both being academics. His brother had written lots of papers and sent them to you know to get them published, just like you do, Joe, and stuff. So he read them and he recognized the his writing style from papers he had oh. from years ago. That and so he connected the dots that way. I thought, wow, what a great hero, turned in his brother, I'm proud of him. It took him three months to do it and that that, that troubled me because I'm like, Well, that could, you know, three more people could have died. But it was right. his brother. He loved his brother. He had like a real dilemma in his in his head of of can I do can should I turn in my own brother even if he's a serial killer? So David Kaczynski was the one that turned his brother in. And the courts, the the doctors who you know, they the big thing they tried to push his his attorneys and he had some he first of all he was very difficult ted kaczynski was very difficult with his attorneys he wanted to represent himself being the world class weirdo that he is they had some you know psychological profiles some psychologists check him out and they said he was definitely um he had some mental health issues he was a sociopath he was a but he was sane psycho but sane they say which I okay. never which I've never heard used in the same sentence.
1: <laughs> so he actually to me that just means he actually knew his own internal number, like he he knew his values and he knew what he was doing. Sociopathic but sane is the word. Sociopathic but sane. I want that on my driver's
0: license by the way. <laughs> If you look at humiliation from a design standpoint, it's kind of like everyone's walking around with a red self-destruct button on their chests. Anyone with enough training or wit can push your button and boom. But here's a trick. Humiliation is only a danger if you have weak core values. If your values are superficial, like pinning your self-worth on your grades or bank statement or shallow values, like building your scheme around your attractiveness or your job title. Those values are easy to attack. That's like putting a red light on your red button and daring the world to press it. We can all learn from the incredibly stupid one, Douglas Hegdal. If we build our values around strong morals, spiritual ideas, or rock solid understanding of ourselves, we disconnect that red button. Humiliation becomes a joke. It's someone pressing your switch and hearing a useless click. If our eternal values are sound, we can afford a little humiliation. We can smile about it, like Doug. We can learn from it. We can absorb humiliation and turn it from a dangerous explosive into humiliation's true purpose a tool to make us more humble. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can
1: connect with us at www.re engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes.
0: We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.